When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New York City's becoming more dangerous. Chicago's becoming more dangerous. Places, San Francisco's becoming more dangerous. Um, You're seeing people leave some places for other places. The greatest danger for most people is failing to look at um, the things that could be harmful to them. Ray Dalio, welcome back to the show. Great to be on your show again. Dude, I'm always excited to talk to you. This is an incredible phase that you're going through in your life where you're taking all of this incredible information that you've gleaned through your years in the financial markets. We're living through a truly unprecedented time of uncertainty, disruption. I think a lot of people are really afraid in terms of what's going to happen to their money with inflation. Are we headed towards hyperinflation? Uh, And in your book, The Changing World Order, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, and the video by the same name, which is blown up, um, I think the reason people are reacting to that is everybody has a sense that something is happening, something that they don't understand how to navigate. And then along comes your book, your video, which really gives a lot of context to that. And so while in by the end of this talk, I really want to give people a sense of what they can do and what we can all do to forestall the essential decline of an empire, which is what we're living through right now. And But first, to get to that, I think we have to understand your concept of this is just another one of these. And by looking back over the last 500 years of history, we can see this cycle that empires go through. And the US is just the most recent one to go through it. If you don't mind walking us through a a thumbnail sketch of the six stages um, of an empire. And then we'll talk about where we're at now and what we can do. Okay. Um, Let's start um, by describing it's something like the new water to the next new water. And when I mean a new water, I mean the new system, right? Like um, the world order was made in 1945 at the end of a war. And um, a a civil war can begin a new order inside of a country, like the Chinese Civil War began their new order inside the country, 1949. And so that's like a new beginning. And what they always come out of wars. And a war is a fight for how the system works. So we'll begin there. Um, After the fight of how the system works, it's a, it's a great leveler. It gets rid of a lot of the debts um, and it starts over. And then there's a new power. Um, in the United States, the new world order, it was an American world order because the United States won World War II. It had 80% of the world's gold. Gold was money. It had the dominant uh, military power. It had nuclear weapons. And because of that, we began the American world order. We literally got people together in a room and said, hey, we're going to be entering literally a new order. 
and they lay things out. It was in Bretton Woods, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so I want people to understand, like, this is people, they get together and they actually decide this stuff. That's right. They carve up the world. Here are the borders. This one, this group gets this piece and so on and so forth. And then they begin. And during, and, and by the way, this has happened repeatedly throughout history. And so they start off with those new rules of the game. And you enter a period of peace and prosperity. And it's peace because nobody wants to fight the dominant power. The dominant power won. And you don't want to fight the dominant power. And so- and you're exhausted. Uh, I mean, and this is one thing you're careful to point out in the book is like, war is horrendous. And so part of what creates that period of stability is just, we've seen so many people die. There's so much destruction of life, wealth, which is why you know the stakes are high when you're talking about this. That's right. And there's a change in psychology really that you're dealing with because quite often these things take place, they take a generation or more to take place, a lifetime. And the people who enter the war do so, so boldly. But everybody who enters the war and then goes through the war wish they never went through the war because it's so terrible. But they come out, as you point out, and then the war is over. They want peace. They want productivity, and so on. And then they, and it's a great leveler, less wealth gaps, and so on. And they work well together, and they build a period of peace and prosperity. That is a long period of peace and prosperity. But during that peace and prosperity, more and more prosperity takes place, and they increasingly bet on that prosperity and people get more in debt. And so you see the debt levels rise and you see the, um, naturally, as prosperity comes, it comes in uh, unequal ways and some get richer than others. And so wealth gaps rise. And then those wealth gaps increasingly create opportunity gaps because the rich people have more resources to educate their children and give them the benefits and so that happens over a period of time while the economy gets more uh, indebted. And of course, as time progresses, other countries um, also rise. Those maybe that even lost the war, like Germany and Japan, they rebuild and they become competitors. And so what, what was a unique power of having won the war becomes less unique as there are more, as there was more competition. And then you get a new generation of uh, people who have a different mentality. They get used to those, those benefits and so on. And they are, um, let's say, less cautious, less cautious in their financial behavior and so on. And so the classic ingredient also is that that country that wins the war also has the world's reserve currency because, okay, you, you need a currency to transact internationally. It's like a language, you need a language to transact internationally. And the winner of the war gets the world's reserve currency because everybody thinks that's the most stable and they also wanna save in it. And so when you have a world- I think that's reserve- important to, to really double click on. There's two things here that I wanna go a little bit deeper. So one of the most profound things I've ever heard you say, and this really hit me, is that, there's a reason this repeats over and over. And that reason is there's only so many personality types. And so people just are the way they are. And so if you put them into these 
predictable situations. They're going to react in predictable ways, which makes this whole cycle incredibly predictable. You can go back, you know, you did a detailed analysis of the previous 500 years, and you just see this same thing happening over and over because, hey, the money's coming in, it's the roaring 20s, but the roaring 20s are going to lead to the 30s style depression basically every time because That's people right. are overextending themselves because they are, they are making the faulty prediction that if I look back at the history of my life, because it has always been this way, it's always going to be this way, not zooming out and seeing, no, 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 you're in a bigger cycle that repeats over and over and over. And the reason I want to hammer this home is since by the end of this, everybody watching, I want you guys to know what to do uh, to prepare yourselves for this. This is Ray's whole point is to make sure that people are actually prepared, but you have to buy into the fact that this is predictable. Otherwise you're going to ignore the advice. And so for me, recognizing that people just are a certain way and that thusly given similar circumstances, they will react in similar ways. And so that was, I think, really important for me to acknowledge. Yes. And, and you could see it not just in the cycle taking place over and over, but if you deal with the cause effect relationships, they're logical. So for example, if you have bad financial conditions as measured by if you're spending a lot more than you're earning and you don't have a lot of savings, you have more debt or liabilities than savings, you're not in a good financial position. That's a fact. And if you have a downturn, if the country as a whole experiences that problem, and you have a, a large wealth gap, you are likely to have a fight. I mean, so these cycles don't just take place as cycles. They take place as conditions that are measurable. And so in the book, it was very important to me not to just use words and theories of how this thing works, but to actually show the measures. What is the wealth gap? What is the amount of debt? What is the amount of printing? What are the conflicts that are taking place? Because then you can monitor those things. Yeah, so this is where it starts to get a little unnerving. So, okay, you recognize these are patterns. They happen all over history and they repeat. And then because you're plotting all of this and you can look at these leading indicators that you talk about pretty extensively in the book, there's 18 that you go into detail couple of times you break them down into ones that maybe are more important than others. But as you peg, so if there's six stages to this arc, um, you've said that the US is in stage five. And to give everybody an idea, stage six is basically revolution, war. It's the, the violent restructuring of the economy. And whether we're in the seventh inning of stage five or the third inning, I don't know. But the fact that we're in stage five, which is obviously where there's massive internal conflict, which rings way too true, um, and the massive disparities, which you did a really cool graph in your video where you show income inequality and that gap between the lines you filled in with resentment. And so you have growing resentment, you get populists on the left and the right, you get internal conflict, people fighting, and then you get a potential external power looking at you going, they're weakened by their internal conflict. And that historically is when a rising power makes its move. Yeah, so I think there are three things, three big forces to keep your eye on. 
And when you see them in their cycle, then it's clear. First, are you earning more than you are spending? And it, do you want people to look at this at an individual level or at a country level? Well, you can at both. I want them to look at it as the country, but the country is nothing more than the aggregate of the people. Mm. And so um, when you look at those three forces, I want to make sure that they're clear and you could align them up and you could see where you are. Is the country earning more than it's spending and building savings? Or is it spending more than it is earning and creating debt? Because one man's debts are another man's assets. And when somebody is holding those assets and they're producing a lot more of that money and debt, they go down in value. Money goes down in value as they produce it to produce that buying power. And then that gets people um, bad returns, bad and it produces a higher amount of inflation and it produces bad returns for holding debt or bond. So in other words, cash or bonds, and then people get out of cash and bonds and that produces rising interest rates while there's rising inflation and that produces stagflation. So I want them to get the mechanics of that because that's happening now. You could see it. This is not controversial. We are producing a lot of debt. We're spending a lot more than we're earning. And as a result, they're printing a lot of money and the printing of a lot of money creates a lot of inflation. And with that inflation, then nobody wants to, you know, cash is trash. You don't want to hold cash um, and you get out of that and that causes rates to rise. And that's one of those three factors. So you can see it happening and you could also see the cycle of it as shown in the book. The second force that is dealing with is the internal conflict force, how you are with each other. Are you operating cohesively, common mission? and moving in the right direction, the system working, or, or are you at each other's throats? Um, uh, is the system threatened? Because history has shown when the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. And that is a risky situation. It's a risky situation because it produces disorder and it can produce a form of civil war. And at those times, when you have that, you see greater and greater polarity. In politics, it shows up at greater and greater populism of the left and populism of the right. And populists uh, wanna fight for their side. They're not moderates. Moderates want to work together to try to find a compromise that's best for the whole. Populists uh, um, appeal to their crowd by saying, I am fighting for you and they will fight each other. And that fight can be at the threat of the system. So in history, for example, we saw four democracies in the 1930s choose to become dictatorships as one side fights to the other because they become so disorderly. And we have a system right now that you could see that it is possible in elections that one side, neither side might accept losing. And so the system, becomes in jeopardy. And you see that the moderates leave the system. They, they, you can't be moderate. You have to pick a side and fight. And so you see this in the French Revolution. There were moderates in the early part of it. 
that recognizing that there were problems and, and wanting to work together. The moderates got guillotined. The, the, the polarity began. The same was true in the Russian Revolution. The same was true in the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, and so on. Those polarity gets greater and greater as there's a greater intensity to fight. And that is the internal piece. And so you could see where we are in that internal piece. Right now, we see um, that uh, moderates are dropping out of uh, uh, choosing not to run for re-election. And you're seeing in the primary system that the fight is who's over most extreme in representing that. And you're seeing this greater polarity. And you see it reflected in many statistics. The um, something like 10 or 15 percent, I forgot if it's 10 percent of the Democrats or 10 percent of the Republicans, I don't remember, versus 15 percent um, wish the members of the other party would die. They don't oh. want them to measure their, uh, they don't want them to marry their uh, children. I mean, there is a great polarity. And you're seeing that um, lead to changes in where people live. They're moving to different areas, not just because of tax reasons, but because of differences in values. And so that kind of, you can see it today happening, these things, but you also can see the arc of them in the book because it measures statistics. It shows these things happening. So when you have a, a financial problems and you have this kind of polarity and you have a bad time, you have a lot of fighting internally. So imagine where we are in the economic cycle. We're in the part of the economic cycle where they have given, uh, the, the government has given a lot of money and credit to people. They've put, put it out. Well, no surprise, that's leading to a lot of inflation, okay? Inflation takes buying power away from people. And it also means that then there's gonna be higher interest rates and that's gonna squeeze people. And so that makes that wealth gap and that wealth issue uh, more difficult. So that's the second force. And the third force is the rise of a great power, the geopolitical force that's going on that we're seeing today with China and Russia and so on, and how that's changing. Because when the, country, when the power of a country diminishes, Okay, when we get weaker financially or how we are with each other and so on, there are greater vulnerabilities. And there's always the competitive power that learns how to become stronger. And competition always happens. There's the establishment and then there's the new competition. And as they get stronger, they get stronger in all ways, militarily and commercially and so on. And that's the dynamic that we're seeing. Yeah, so we've got Taiwan looming in the, the sort of political background. You said many times in the book that that's a, an indicator that you'd really be looking at if there was a, a fourth skirmish over Taiwan that you would get increasingly worried. We definitely need to talk about inflation in a minute because I want to know what people should be doing in that environment. But first, like the, and I don't know if people are like me, but the thing that got me to stop and really start paying attention to this was how far into stage five we are. That was the thing that compelled me that I have to slow down. I really have to look at this because I actually don't like thinking about money despite my longstanding pursuit of success. That's really been about something else for me. Money has been a byproduct of that. Um, and that's in the book. And I don't know if your number has changed, but in the book, you say that you give 
a 30% chance of the US falling into civil war, I think in the next five to 10 years, and that uh, a major conflict with China at 35% in the next 10 years. And you said, look, it's a guess, but you lay out a lot of data before you say that it's just a guess. So it's obviously a very well-informed guess. One, do those numbers roughly hold for you still? And if they do, how do we pump the brakes on this? Um, I, I would say that those numbers probably are a little bit higher now, I would say. The I was afraid you'd say that. Things are progressing a little bit quicker. Um, the, do you mind uh, ballparking me? If, it, if we're not at 30, are we... 31? Are we 40? Yeah, let, let's say um, let, let's say 35 to 40 percent um, on on each. Let's say, Whoa. and who, and I'm not I'm not being precise, but the so, events so. that happened in the Ukraine um, and that is is um, bringing all this up, development internationally up um, at a little bit quicker pace. It's the same dynamic. There is There are two sides and there'll be neutral countries, just like in the war, there was the allies and the Axis powers, and then there'd be neutral countries. And so that part is developing. Um, the US uh, conflict part is probably progressing a little bit quicker. Um, so, I mean, the, let, let's say the odds of that. Um, on the on the U, um, on the world order, um, the developments in the Ukraine. Maybe I should put those in perspective. Would you, you like me to Please. do that? Please, absolutely. Um, okay. Um, there is a a very close relationship, a common objective of the Russians and the Chinese. So um, there is a. Um, a competition in the world, and there's a dominant world power which um, is perceived as being overly controlling. So the Chinese believe that the policy of containment of the United States, um, in other words, just right within their borders, that there isn't a region uh, that's suitable for them, um, in much the same way as uh, the United States there's always a geographic region that as an area of influence uh, <clears throat> the United States in the area uh, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Cuba, um, when there's a threatening power um, in Cuba, we reacted to that. Those That kind of geopolitics, um, they believe that the United States is sort of containing them and they are growing in power so that there's that dynamic in Russia uh, has the same kind of view. And so that there's a common, let's call it enemy, uh, comp competitor. And there are five types of wars. Uh, there's a trade war, there's a technology war, there's a geopolitical influence war, there is a capital war, and then there's a military shooting war. Um, and we are in the first four of those wars um, in, uh, in this competition. Um, with China or with Russia? With China. Well, we're not in a shooting war with China. We are in um, a shooting war of sorts 
in with Russia and the Ukraine. We're providing arms, and so they're shooting, and so there's a military war going on, and uh, and we're in it uh, in our way. So we're at those particular uh, spots, um, and the capital war um, is sanctions. We hear the notion of sanctions, and what that means is they're economic, and the way they work is to shut off, um, to produce economic pain by either um, not letting them get at their money or um, not letting them get to goods that they can import. And these have happened through time. Um, in Japan, that was what set us up for uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor because the United States cut off Japan's oil supply, was in the process of doing that, and also confiscated its uh, bonds, much the same way as happening now. And that put them into a corner that led them to um, bomb Pearl Harbor, and then we went to a military war. So that's where we are now. And that also is risky because it threatens the value of the dollar. Because um, the, right, uh, right now, debt is dollars. A a any currency, the way you hold it is you hold it in the form of debt. You don't hold it just in paper. And um, uh, because it, there's a rising inflation and because there's a lot of printing of money and because there's also a greater fear on a number of countries that they too could be sanctioned, there is a selling of dollar denominated debt. So you're seeing that the bond market is going down and interest that started rate. escalating recently. Yeah, that's right. And so there is that that dynamic that's going on. The capital wars um, are the ones that accelerate immediately before um, the, uh, the military wars. Usually the coffers are empty, they're printing a lot of money, and then they're trying to use uh, economics as a weapon. So we're, we're in that part of the cycle. Now, um, in terms of how this will transpire, I think there are, um, there are three big questions that we're going to learn about and get answers to pretty quickly. Um, the first is, does uh, Putin and Russia uh, win or lose? Um, I'll describe win as um, what he wanted at the outset, which is win for Russia would be to have um, the Ukraine um, be some non-threatening position, such as a neutrality, a guaranteed neutrality, and for Russia to have control over eastern provinces, and for Russia not to be um, economically devastated, um, instead to be maybe have a, something like a 10 or 12 percent decline in GDP, and for Putin to be in power. If those four things happen, <clears throat> then the cost of his actions will have been worth the uh, what was obtained from that. And that would be viewed as a win. Um, it would be then also a loss <clears throat> from the Western countries. The world is looking at the power of American sanctions um, because American sanctions are the greatest power the United States has. 
if it was a military power, it, the world has uh, come to the position that a number of countries have had um, an equal ability to do harm to the United States militarily as the United States was have, have to do to them. And so we don't have a dominant military power anymore. Wow. But we do have a uh, dominant um, sanctions power. So if- We're still ahead of China? Um, in, in, in the United States, and ability to influence, have economic sanctions is much ahead because it controls the world's reserve currency. That's the biggest asset. But in weaponizing the dollar, um, it is leading those to get around and not want to hold dollars because they get worried that they're going to be confiscated. So, <clears throat> so we will see if that dollar um, sanctions power, we'll see how powerful it is. If it isn't very powerful, that's going to be a problem. Um, because, because others we, will perceive our weakness. Well, and they'll also realize then, um, uh, then you only have military power. I mean, think about this way. If this war is not a difficult war for the United States and Europe for the most important, it, it produces higher oil prices and the like. But um, while Russia is throwing in military, we are throwing in sanctions. And these sanctions don't cause cost lives. Um, it's not a military war. Uh, so we're fighting it with sanctions and they're fighting it with, um, with military. If you didn't have that, how would you fight this war? It would be a much more difficult situation. And the third thing that we're seeing is how the world is lining up. The world is lining up, uh, which, you know, there are in wars, typically Axis and, Exa, uh, and allied powers. And you could see by the actions that are taken by as to which are lining up. Um, who voted in favor of what at the United Nations? Who is allowing what rules? Uh, who is trading with the other party? Who would, um, Russia actually put out a list um, who are friendly and adversarial countries. Um, you'll see at the next G20 meeting uh, who will be in favor of Russia attending that meeting and who will be in favor of it not attending. And that's making clear how the sides are lining up. So you're seeing those sides line up and all sides are in preparation for war. Ooh. Okay, so... All right, we've got that escalating. Things are moving faster um, between us and China than we thought, escalating tensions here in the US. Um, inflation is one thing I wanna really touch on. So what do you do in an inflationary environment? As somebody who's not, I don't consider myself a savvy investor. And so I always wanted, I used to joke with my money manager, I wanna be as close to my money buried in the backyard as possible. And uh, obviously, for inflation reasons, I have since learned that that is a terrible strategy. Um, but what do you do? Well, first thing is you realize that uh, holding cash and dead assets is a bad thing. So a lot of um, money uh, 
is in cash because people think that cash is the safest investment. But they are measuring that in the amount of money that they get nominal returns. And they say it doesn't wiggle much. But think about it. Um, it's lost, as of the most recent statistics, 8.5% over the last um, inflation is 8.5%, and they receive virtually no interest rate in cash. And That's so there was an 8.5% loss of buying power as a result of inflation. And so psychology should change and is in the process of changing to realize that you have to think in terms of buying power, not the number of dollars you have. Mm. And you have to think um, how much uh, are your, is your buying power. And so the worst thing is to be in cash. Like I say, cash is trash. And to be, in to, uh, and to be out of uh, the bonds. Um, the next thing is to have a diversified portfolio of assets. Um, the diversification um, means um, some assets that are um, uh, inflation hedge prone. For example, you're better off to own an inflation index bond than a regular bond. You're better off to own... Um, what makes something an inflation index? Like what, what are the nature? Is that going to be gold and precious metals, tangible things? Like what are the things that are resistant to inflation? Um, yes. And inflation index bonds because their returns are tied to inflation. Interesting. Uh, I don't, I don't understand that well enough to know what, how one would do that. Is that worth going into? I don't know what the punchline is going to be. Yeah. Um, I think the punchline is if you take a look at it, uh, it's in, it's simple. It's uh, like a regular bond, except um, its payments are linked to the inflation. So they compensate you for inflation. So the, is this a government bond? Yeah, government bond. Okay. And there are some tax advantages to them too. So look into them. Okay. And why don't people just flood into that? Well, um, I think it's, it's one type of asset. Now, flooding into any one thing is a is an issue, but the, but moving from the nominal bonds in which the government just says I'll give you this amount of money and it has the unbelie unbe unbelievable and unlimited ability to print the money it gives you, um, it would favor inflation index bonds, um, and it could be other assets. Uh, you know, some people would say something in terms of cryptocurrencies, or it might be. Um, uh, the, those other assets. Um, I think What's your take on crypto? So crypto is a huge part of my portfolio. I think you'd be mortified to see uh, just how much so. But yeah, what are your thoughts on crypto? Um, I think I, I think that too much pe people pay too much attention to one uh, at at the extreme of the other. You know um, that either somebody's all crypto um or they're all gold or they're all something and i uh, i i believe that that's a challenge i think that um crypto like gold is not a productivity earning asset and it can be controlled by governments uh in lots of ways it's been outlawed in a number of places 
and it also can be monitored. The privacy um, element is not uh, secure from governments doing monitoring. And, and, and so, um, and the size of crypto is about the size of um, Microsoft. You know, it's all crypto combined. And so to um, be overly concentrated in it, in my opinion, is a mistake. Um, uh, but to have some of it uh, is, a good, it, is a good thing. So the question is always, uh, what amount of it? Mm. So that's, um, uh, you know, I have a little bit about it. I'd probably shock you about how little I have. <laughs> you shock me about how much, how much you have, uh, but having some of it. Um, so the, um, and other things I would say is that geographic location is important. In other words, not just all in US and US dollar assets. Um, I would say that the three things that, that again, I'm looking at if I go down countries is first, um, are they earning more than they're spending? Do they have a good income statement and balance sheet? This is gonna be very important in the period of head, ahead because the amount of credit that's going to be available to bridge the gap between spending and earning uh, cash flows and so on is going to be a quite narrower. So a lot of companies even that were able to raise cash um, and not have good cash flow because of maybe growth expectations in the future will find it more difficult. That'll be true for individuals, it'll be true for um, countries. So is it, does it have a good income statement and balance sheet will be important. The second is um, places. How are they working with each other? Is there civil civility or is there civil war on the brink of civil war? Because countries where they work well together, they're productive, are gonna have a real competitive advantage. Orderly places, safe places to be, you guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. 
Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Um, our... What are countries on the rise in that? So obviously, I, I'm shocked to say this out loud, but the U.S. would be in a bad place in terms of that. Um, what are places that have great stability there? Well, um, there are parts in the United States that are better than parts, other parts of the United States. Meaning like local see, government bonds or something like that? Well, I'm, I'm out talking about the, uh, like where you want to be and then that'll be, but yes, there, it could be bonds. It could be places. I'm talking now the places, the, um, uh, for example, we just had the shooting in New York city, um, on the subway and, and New York city is becoming more dangerous. Chicago's becoming more dangerous. Places, San Francisco is becoming more dangerous. Um, you're seeing people leave some places for other places. Um, you're seeing them leave, I don't know, to Texas, uh, Texas is Austin or uh, to Florida and so on. So there are differences in, um, in, in within the United States and differences from the United States. So you mean people need to think about picking up and moving and actually going and being in a different place. Yeah, and those are also the better places economically because gotcha. when, when um, people do leave and they do that, um, those who leave um, are higher income and higher taxpayers. And as a result, there's more of a hollowing out that takes place in that, which creates an economic problem as well as a, you know, a lifestyle problem. So I think you're going to see greater differentiation in places, which affects 
where you want to be and where people um, who can afford to be there want to be, and also affects what their economies and markets are like. And that's so, and then the United States. Um, so, um, yeah, and the third element is um, so. Um, are they financially strong? In other words, income more than expenses and good balance sheet. Are they civil with each other? So they're working together rather than hurting each other. And number three is, are they um, um, in a position where they're likely to be in a war or are they likely to be out of a war? Um, you, you know, you don't want to be in a war. So, uh, and those places investing wise, history has shown, um, do worse because they have to spend more money. There's more uh, problems, more pain that's being exchanged. Neutral countries in wars uh, do very well, as it turns out. Uh, so elements of diversification. So it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I would not want to be in debt or, or cash and, and those instruments. I would want to diversify well with a bias toward uh, inflation protected assets. And I would want to uh, diversify between locations, countries, um, uh, in terms of the investment based on the criteria I've just mentioned. Mm, okay, that all makes sense. Now you've said that competing in the markets is harder than competing in the Olympics, uh, which I found funny and distressing all at the same time. You said that you guys at Bridgewater spend hundreds of millions of dollars on research alone, and that somebody like me is gonna to have to compete with that. So what's the advice for the average person that isn't gonna be doing that? And how often should people be reassessing? I feel like in a turbulent environment, should I be looking at this like every week? Like how often and do you, like if you were managing your personal account without computers, at least without the, you know, sort of hyper auto trading, um, how often are you looking at it? And how do you avoid trying to compete against the best of the best of the best? Uh, I, I think that you have to understand what a good strategic asset allocation mix is. That is how to create a good, well-diversified portfolio, assuming that you don't know how to make these buy and sell decisions. Because, uh, because what happens is, think of it, it's, it's, it's like a poker game and you're playing against others. And those others are putting in most lose, most, most buy at the highs and sell at the lows. Most behave emotionally. Most don't have the same information. Uh, it, so it's, it's a very difficult game. Like I say, you, you know, you wouldn't think I'm gonna go try to compete in the Olympics, but more people think that they can compete in the markets. They think, I think the markets are gonna go up or down. And the track records there are terrible for most people, okay? Because of those handicaps relative to others. Um, so for that reason, you start off with a well-diversified balanced portfolio because diversification can reduce your risk without reducing your return. If you understand how to get equally attractive investments, that are not correlated with each other, that diversify each other. You can build a diversified board portfolio. It would take too long for me to explain, you know, how to do that right now, but uh, that becomes the headline. Um, and um, I, um, 
um, I'm, I described it um, in my book, um, uh, Principles for Life and Work. Um, also, uh, Tony Robbins described it and uh, he asked me about it and, and then described it in um, his book. I forgot the name of it. Money but, Master uh, the Game. Okay. And, and he describes it pretty well. And for the, that, I'm, you know, I direct you there. Um, I'm going to be writing a book. Um, I'm in the process of doing it about economic and investment principles. And then I'll describe it more completely. But right now, that's the best I can do in this interview. Mm. No, for sure. That, that already is really helpful. Let's talk about um, day trading, for lack of a better word. So I think about this a lot because I'm, I'm in the world of NFTs as a creator far more than as somebody who's buying them. And as I look at Web3, the reason I don't treat it as an investment, I don't think of NFTs as an investment class, even though people are treating it like that, they're treating it like a hedge against inflation, some people treating it like a get rich quick scheme. It's that same idea that the vast majority of the money is being made by, I think, less than 5% of the wallets. And so 95% of people are getting beaten to death while 5% of people make all the money. And it feels like that's a similar idea to how somebody like myself, who I know enough to like get moving to do the research and things like that, but I don't want to be in there trying to day trade. So is this in some ways, you, you definitely want to be thoughtful about your mix, diversifying, making sure you're going for uncorrelated asset classes, uh, following the guidance that you just gave us. But is there also an element of don't try to time the market, it's time in the market. And so get my diversified portfolio set and forget, or do I need to be in there like constantly re-upping, rebalancing, that kind of thing? Um. It's a little bit like um, <clears throat> you can start off with, and I, I, and I think this is most important, what's your strategic asset allocation mix? And then it's like going to the poker table. And then you say, what is my angle? Where's my, ec where do I get to take money away from others? Because I'm better at it, okay? But you start, everybody should start with a balanced portfolio. Okay, most everybody, they have careers to do. And, and, and I think they're arrogant. They think they can go in there and they can take money away. Maybe some can. But if you're going to play that game, um, the first thing is um, also test your decision rules. Um, don't just go in and then you say, I'm going to wing it and, 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 and do it. And um, because you won't even have enough sample size in your decision rules to know whether you're good at it or bad at it. What? After the first five times, you're going to pronounce how you are. It's a learning experience, just like any other learning experience to develop your expertise. What I find is really important is to take my decision rules and test how they would have performed in the past to at least give me my, some perspective of what my, I might expect in the future. But you have to think through a game plan and operate that way. So I, by and large, would say, first, the, um, the most important things you could do are actually the simplest thing you could do to build that strategic asset allocation mix, not to be out in there day trading your life's fortune away. That makes sense to me. I want to go back to the idea of we've got the cycles. It's so far, every global reserve currency ever has collapsed and been replaced. And so it would certainly be hubris to think that the US's time as uh, that reserve currency is going to last forever. But 
in your video, you showed a guy like holding up the the falling line and and trying to forestall that effect and hopefully you know carry it out longer or at least make it a more gentle tapering out. Um, what can we be doing to forestall some of the internal conflict? Um, how do we get there's I know there's a lot of momentum going that stops people from making more than they spend at the government level. Um, but are there techniques, like if, if I could convince you to run for office and you got elected, um, what would you do to forestall that inevitability? Well, um, again, there's those who control the system and what should be done. And then there's what the individual should do to assuming that they can control the system. So your question really is, I view it in terms of those two parts. Um, what's necessary is um, you have to earn more than you spend as a society. And so we look at our country as a whole. Um, and so you have to get financially sound. Yeah, I mean, and you this is to, what people talk about with austerity, right? Well, or productivity. In one way or another, you have it's the same thing. So productivity would be make more money. So yeah, keep spending what you're spending, but make more right. money. That's right. Okay. And, uh, um, and that that opportunity has got to be uh, as much equal opportunity across the population. Because um, if it is for the averages may be very misleading. Um, and if, it, if most people are not benefiting or have that opportunity, it is something that is um, suboptimal for the development of the country because you don't know where the talent comes from. What's the lever we pulled to do that though? Well, let me get it out and then I'll get to the to how I would do it. Okay, but I'm just saying, okay, what you have to do is two basic things. You've got to be, um, you've got to be financially strong. So you've got to get, you have to be productive so that your income um, is greater than your expenditures and you've got to be good with each other. You work well together, you're not destructive with each other. If, you and, compromise. And if you do those two things, like you're good with each other and you're, you know, so you're productive and you're financially sound, you've got to do those things. Now, under those things, there are a number of things you have to end, you have to educate your population well, they have to learn how to be civil with each other, you have to provide a, a system that produces that allows productivity to be good, blah, blah, blah. But to answer your question and really get to the punchline, because that's what I need to do. You need to create a system that both increases the size of the pie and divides it well, okay? And most importantly, divides opportunity well, not just the output well, but opportunity, but also uh, the, the wealth well. So you have to increase the size of the pie and divide it well. Um, and the way that I would uh, do that is I would start by having a bipartisan cabinet. Uh, and bring together smart moderates, pe people who can work on both sides. Because I think that the first thing is that the po polarity is going to kill us. I, I think we're going to fight, 
before we're going to resolve smartly what we should do. So I would want to have a bipartisan cabinet, and I would also want to have um, um, a, a program that's like a Manhattan Project in which I take the smartest from both sides and work um, to engineer a program that is like that so that when they come out with the program, there's the moderate left and the moderate right, in a sense, who are, who are, who are agreeing because uh, we each have our own ways of doing this thing. You know, and but what, what we'll do is we'll kill each other over which exact way we do it. And I think that to have a common uh, bipartisan program that is raising productivity and redistributes opportunity and wealth well is the most fundamentally important thing. So I would have that bipartisan cabinet and then I would have those moderates have to deal with the extremists on their party. Uh, their parties, because I believe that more than likely, it's going to be the extremists who are going to um, destroy the system, threaten the system, um, because they won't be able to compromise. The fight will be so bad, and the answers do not lie in the extremism. Yep, I would agree with that very much. Um, so if you were to guess what were what are going to be some of the elements to create that are going to come out of that manhattan project like if you had to throw some of your own ideas in the ring uh i'm sure you've thought through this well a it, it, it you know it's 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 kind of like very easy you can see what happens before um education and infrastructure are two areas that are fabulous in terms of um being great investments and not are not treated in, as great investments I, um, my wife, particularly, and me um, peripherally, uh, work in the state of and uh, uh, Connecticut for education. I'm going to give you a picture. Um, uh, Connecticut is usually uh, per average per capita income number one, two, or three in the country, and in Connecticut, um, in high high school students, 22 percent of the high school students are disengaged, which means that they have an absentee rate of greater than 25% in their failing classes. Whoa. And, uh, or disconnected means they've dropped out of school and they don't know where they are. So one in five students, more than one in five students, um, education system is failing. They will be on the streets. They will be not doing good things on the on the streets. They are likely to be incarcerated. There are um, gangs and gun shootings and so on. And, um, uh, that all must end. Okay, that all must end. That there have to be, um, um, there's a level, a bottom to which uh, you can't let the society uh, go. And um, we found through uh, largely her efforts and so on, um, that for um, seven to $9,000 per, per student, we could get them through high school and into jobs and then they become productive. What is it about that case, money? How, how do you allocate that to break that cycle? Um, there are things that you can do uh, at certain points in their life, particularly between eighth and ninth grade, 
um, that you can um, help them uh, make that transition and understand how they're doing and then work with providing supports to make them successful. Some cases, putting them in a direction where there's they go into trade programs um, so that they'll be prepared for jobs and so on. But there are, my main point is, um, that's only just one example. As I see, we're operating a lot philanthropically in different areas. And we see so many cost benefit um, to uh, creating um, improvements and great investments um, that would have a big effect. But it starts with real education. And because you have to have an educated population and a civility, it's a very difficult thing when the children are raised, children are raised where, um, you know, quite often a single parent in a slum where there's drugs, where there's guns, where there's gangs. Who are you going to relate to? What, what is your best likelihood of an income? It's through drug dealing and it's with gangs. That's your community and, and so on. That cycle has got to be broken. Um, and I'm only giving that as, as one example. But there are so many um, cost-effective ways of putting in money. Um, infrastructure like um, to not have um, laptops and connectivity um, is uh, today the equivalent of not having uh, running water and electricity um, or the telephone. And we see it with education. Uh, we were, again, in Connecticut, we found uh, 60,000 students didn't have computers. How were they going to get educated? Whoa. So we, we got them the computers, but uh, and the society that would allow that is something wrong. And then connectivity. So certain basic infrastructure. I mean, there, there are a lot of good investments that are not necessarily, they don't necessarily come from um, uh, the business profit-seeking world. Profit is uh, a good, uh, but highly imperfect way of allocating resources, because in some cases, something, you know, building a road may not be profitable, um, but it might, uh, when the United States built roads and it built railroads and so on, it uh, dramatically increased productivity. So there's infrastructure and, and changes that, um, that have to be made. And there's great advances on these things great advances on how to educate um, using um, computer technology that also not only helps the student learn, but it also helps the computer learn about the student and how they think. So there's a lot of potential. Think about it this way. The world is richer today. We, we, we have more per capita income. We have more um, uh, technology and know-how. Um, it, it just has to be redeployed in a way where it maximizes the efficiency and the and essentially the equal uh, equality of opportunity, so that uh, we pull together. And now that's a dream, you know. Uh, is it a likelihood? It's not a likelihood, okay? Because people in these cycles. 
go to fight and 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 you know they're focused uh, more on um, them winning. Yeah, I want to I want to put a point on that. So as you were talking about it, I was like, okay, how do we end up here? How do we get people out of this? There's a couple things that I see. So as a kid of the '80s, um, loving America was cool. And like, it was just natural. All my friends loved America. And recently I had a friend who was like, oh, I went on vacation and I put up an American flag outside my door. And I was like, I guarantee that's going to get ripped down. He was like, oh yeah, it's already been ripped down. And I was like, that's crazy. Like we live in LA, like this is a, a major American city. And for that to be considered offensive. So anyway, I think about these kids. So I don't know how much you know about my obsession and why I work as much as I do. I worked in the inner cities. I worked with these kids that you were talking about, like up close. You get to know them. You love them. You want them to succeed. You want them to do well. So you start asking a basic question. They're really smart, not universally. It's normal distribution, but you've got some really smart people in the inner cities just being destroyed by their zip code. So I'm like, okay, wait, how did we end up here? Like, what would they have to do? No, whatever. And for me, I came down to a lot of this is mindset. Like they, they've been told the world doesn't want you to succeed, so they don't even try, which if you believe that the world is just stacked against you and that it's impossible, then of course, why would you try? So I was like, okay, we've got to get the right ideas in their heads so that they will take the right actions to learn and get educated. Now, I didn't get deep enough to you know, learn about how many people don't have computers and connectivity and all that. That's distressing. But when I think about why, because you said in a society like ours, something is wrong if you're allowing that to happen. And my answer to that is, You've got the civility quotient of, in some cases, I just don't want to see the other side have their way. So if the right answer comes from the wrong side, then I'm going to fight against it if I'm the other side. Then you've got, we can agree that the country is worth loving. So even just saying like, hey, we've got to put aside our differences because we're all Americans. And let's make sure that we are elevating all Americans. It's like, nope, like I can't rally behind the flag. I can't get behind this idea. And so now all these people are stuck in this purgatory of nobody's looking at metrics to say, hey, we're trying things. Is it actually working? And if the metrics aren't improving, then we have to change the policy. But that's not happening because of all the fighting. But I do think that it's, partly because you have that we can't even agree to rally around the country does that strike you as a without patriotism i don't know is patriotism a force for good evil how do you see that mm. i think good produces a good type of patriotism <laughs> I, I so i went through the same cycle and i'll talk about metrics too um the reason I put metrics in there is, um, and I'm, every six months or 12 months, I'm going to update the metrics so that everybody could look at those objective numbers and see, are we improving or are we deteriorating? And I think if the politicians, the people in government were held accountable for those numbers so that you can objectively see, is education, is the wealth gap rising, is there... Um, greater productivity, these are measurable things. You can then see, they're, and, and, and they're not just measurable about outcomes, they're measurable about health. You know, if you have a better healthy income statement and balance sheet, you are healthier and financially and so on. So those metrics will put out, but um, yeah, no, I saw the cycle. 
Um, the United States world order began in 1945. I was born in 1949 and I benefited from it. And, I, and it was um, not just an American perspective, that American dream, it was a world dream. It was the only country in the world where there was really a sense of equal opportunity. I was very lucky. I had two parents who, who cared for me. They loved me, took, uh, gave me good guidance. I went to a public high, uh, all public schools um, and I came out to a world of equal opportunity. That's all I needed, okay? That's all almost everybody should get. Why shouldn't everybody get that? And it was a place where anybody from all over the world could come and you were not, um, you could be a citizen. And it was the only place in the world where you could really be a part of that and not considered an outsider. So all that immigration brought the best talent and we operated in a place where there was rule of law and everybody respected the law there were property protections, and you could make a life that was uh, the type of life that you've had, the type of life that I've had, where we're free, free to free to speak, free to um, do those things, to have opportunity, and and so on, free to, free to invent, free to do what you're doing and I'm doing, and that is the American dream, and that was a beacon for people all around the world. That was what a United States was and so on. And that is good. That is good, okay? Now we have something different and we have a dynamic which is going on because we all abused that because we had to spend so much money because we became decadent in terms of overspending on some things and undertaking care of other things and so on. And now there's a fight. And that, that becomes that dynamic. So yes, if we could recreate the realization of, of what that was, what the, is the American dream? What is fair? How does that work? And rekindle that, then that has a tremendous power in being able to bring that back. But the dynamic of history shows that it's more likely that it goes the other way. But yes, if we rekindle that, the idea of heroes, you know, we don't have any heroes. Uh, why don't we have any heroes? Because we're tearing people down. Heroes are role models, people who we admire. There are many people I admire, you know, and I've seen in my lifetime. You know, you know we should see more of those role models as, as, as examples of how to be. But we're, yes, we're missing that. We've become a decadent, largely a decadent society that's at each other's throats and we're in trouble. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. 
Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Yeah, we're in trouble. Innovation. Speaking of, there's there's like almost a distrust now of people that strive for success. There's a distrust of science to some extent. There's... Um, I feel like, and maybe I'm crazy because the stats will bear this out, but it feels like we used to be the place everybody would want to come. If you had that entrepreneurial dream and you wanted to build something and you wanted to generate wealth and innovate something, this is where you would come. And then I look at somebody like Elon Musk, who honestly, man, just seems like an alien. I don't know how he's pulled off everything that he's pulled off. It's absolutely bananas. And yet... There are people who just can't have it. They can't have the level of success that he's had and aren't necessarily even looking at it from the lens of the innovations that he's created. Do you think that that's a, a predictable change in attitude that people have and they, they lose the desire for innovation? Is it, is it just being decadent or is there uh, a rebellion against um, education? I don't know. I don't. I was so shocked to hear that there are people that aren't inspired by what he's doing, but instead are like just opposed. Um, I think it's, I think everybody's got these opinions and they're so critical and um, not, you know, if, if everybody could just take care of themselves, you know, it's, it's like, um, start with, with oneself. Um, the aspiration, and I think the reality should be to be self-sufficient plus. Okay, here, here's my view. Uh, success doesn't have to be making the most money or the most contribution. Success for a, a successful life is that um, you have the life, the type of life that you want for you. Um, but you earn more than you spend so that you're self-sufficient. And, and if every individual could do that, you would have self-accountability and, and a successful society. Um, and so it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing uh, when people produce things that others want. Um, uh, and they end up making, in many cases, billions of dollars. It doesn't have to be the billions of dollars to be successful, but
but let's not resent that. Like I think uh, when we think about um, the prejudice, the prejudice of uh, either against the billionaire or against the poor person, um, that, that, that prejudice. Um, I think supposing um, we didn't, we eliminated the, the billionaires. Most of the billionaires, the, one thing is inheriting the billions. The, another thing is creating the billions. Um, most of that comes from coming up with something that people wanted and then they, and people spent a lot of money on that thing. And I think if you were to take those items that they created and you say, the society's not gonna have those items, would you have rather not had them? I think it, 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 it's all a matter of um, stop the fighting, be productive, have the life that you want, um, you, you know, not, um, not, the, not all this fighting and criticism that is going to tear down each other. Yeah, one thing that I've heard you talk about that I really resonate with is the idea of leading with understanding listen first, try to figure people out. Um, I know your stance on China has become uh, controversial, I guess, but when I hear what you say, it's basically understand them, even if they end up becoming our enemy, to understand them would be incredibly important. Is that a life strategy you have of trying to understand people? Are you somebody who sees yourself as, as somebody bringing people together? What what do you think is that importance in terms of understanding others? Well, uh, just, just from really just on seeking understanding is a very practical thing. And it's interesting as could be. And then, um, and then it has a lot of really good results because with that understanding, you can understand how to trade things to have win-win relationships rather than lose-lose relationships. So, um, yeah, I think that um, most people are operating in their perspective of, uh, you know, what's good for them. And, and then um, the best are uh, operating with a concept of win-win relationships, that they understand that um, if I have a win-win relationship, um, I can, you know, like I have the principle, one and one equals three. Um, if you, if there are two of you and you can trade things and you can help each other, um, that's a win-win relationship and, and that is the best. But in order to do that efficiently, you have to understand their perspective. And also their perspective is not, um, uh, as much like a characterization of good and evil. It is them doing what they believe is in their interest. Now that may do you harm and you might call that evil, but you know, it's almost that back and forth. So, um, so when you have that open-mindedness, so you can understand, understanding somebody else's perspective is not the same as um, believing that what they're doing is right. You may have a choice, but if you have somebody who has a different religion or a different way of doing things, um, to at least have an understanding of that to see it through their eyes, right? Um, you don't. You can reject it. You could say I don't want it, or but even then, you have the capacity to deal with it in a much more informed way than if you don't understand it. 
So understanding, I think, is is um, and the, uh, is important. And then, of course, the world works in a real in a, in a way where it's the reality that they will move in a certain way, and then you move in a certain way in, in those interactions. And if you don't have that understanding of the reasons why, you're never going to be able to play the game, whether that's a playing a game against them or playing a game with them to try to produce the best possible outcome, you're never going to be able to do that well. And so, yes, I see this tremendous misunderstanding because there's a tendency to demonize the other side. Okay. And that's, you know, and so it becomes a distorted reality in which there's an inclination to go fight and there's misunderstandings. Well, if, even if you're going to go fight, make sure you've got understanding. Yeah. So I, um, when I, I was introduced to Taoism when I was probably 16. And so that gave me when I was young, I really had an obsession with China and Chinese philosophy. And I studied Lao Tzu, Zhuangzi, and just really became enamored with uh, the East and Eastern thought. And so for me, it's been almost strange to watch China take on a very different um, tenor in terms of the way the US perceives China, right? To see this stuff escalating and getting darker and darker. Um, what I find interesting is, like you said, to understand them is not the same as to agree with them. And I think that that's very important. First of all, I'm not a scholar on it, so I don't know. Um, but what I, when I take that, what you're saying, and I apply it to the US of, okay, lead with understanding, lead with trying to figure out where they're coming from, lead with recognizing that if you don't and you encamp into this us versus them, it is inevitable that you conflict. And so when I look into the future, I have whether I like China or think they're out of their minds, I have no interest in going to war with them. Just the loss of life is just too catastrophic to even contemplate. So I started thinking, okay, like how do we bring these together? And you had a key insight in the book that I thought was really powerful. And you said, look, no matter what you think about China, you have to understand that they believe they're doing what is right. You're not going to convince them to do it the American way any more than they're going to be able to convince us to do it the Chinese way. And I found that insight very compelling because you go into this ideological battle when you think, oh, we can convince them, we can win. When you think that you can draw them over to your side, that's one thing. But if you can't, then it becomes a very different game of, okay, how do we negotiate this relationship if I'm not going to be able to convince them. And so in the book, you bring up another idea, which is the idea of dialecticals, two opposing forces coming together. And, and in the friction is the superior answer. So I know that China looks at themselves that way and they use dialectics. I think that the US, given the, the conflict between the left and the right, has to start doing the same thing of saying, hey, we actually need to value this friction that it's not, I'm not trying to convince somebody on the other side to think like I think. I'm trying not to even think of myself as having a side, if I'm completely honest. But I understand that they're personality types. They see the world differently. They're never going to persuade each other. But hopefully we can let go of some of that, the, the warfare mentality and bring people back to a table of compromise. Am I understanding that the dialectical nature of those two opposing forces correctly? And do you think that that is a useful 
way to instead of trying to get the other side to agree to to find the the strength in that push pull yeah yes and that yes totally unequivocally and in addition to understand the cost of lose-lose and additionally the issue of sovereignty um you know um the the invention of countries which came in the uh late 17th century after the 30 years war was one of the great inventions they were not countries there were no borders amazing thing there were no countries there were no borders um the way it worked is most countries were run by families because they were royal families and um there was a constant fighting like i want to go take more or they would take more and there was constant fighting and they had a war 30 years war they called it and at the end of this 30 years war they were so sick of war that they came up with this idea of countries so countries that had a border and that you would determine those inside those countries would determine what went on in those countries back then they fought fought whether it should be um catholicism or protestantism or whether it was the pope or whether it was <laughs> they fought about a lot of things but when they had that they said okay that's what we're going to do it is we're going to do it within borders so i think that's interesting so the idea is that by and large if you have a domain and it's in your border that you have control of that that that's one element then there's win-win uh, relationships versus lose-lose relationships and the things that you were talking about the dialectic um, forces one to recognize the pros and the cons and to try to get into an equilibrium level i think that the, all all of that is right none of these things works perfectly so the question of um you know what is it uh, the, can anything go on within those borders and it's okay Maybe there are common rules that the system as a whole agrees can or can't or something. But those kinds of rules, um, I think, are important. So as we go down the checklist, um, you know, kind of um, live and let live, win-win uh, is better than lose-lose, understand each other, where they're coming from so that you could do good trades and don't misunderstand, you know, lose-lose wars. Are, 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 you know, are ter terrible types of things there. That doesn't mean there are not things worth fighting for. But if you s operate within the parameters of borders, and it, then it's largely your own business. Uh, and, and then we come to ourselves. And the most important thing, whether there's international or domestic issues, is be strong. Like if it's like be healthy. If you're strong and healthy, you don't have to worry domestically and you don't have to worry internationally. And it's just basic things of what's strong and healthy. You earn more than you spend. You're good with each other. You know, you educate your population. You're productive. 
Those are basics. Be that. Take responsibility for yourself doing that. The United States should take responsibility for itself doing that like every other country can. And if it does that, it will be strong and it'll be healthy and it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, Ray. I, um, I really want to be in a positive place about where all this is going. I'm such an optimistic person by nature, but there's something about watching that breakdown that you did of the last 500 years. I think I told you this when we were doing the pre-call. I couldn't, I couldn't listen to the book first thing in the morning because it, it was like putting me in this really um, almost stressed out state of like, man, yeah, we're, go ahead. I, uh, but I have a principle. Please. If you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because if you, the thing that I could give you is this worry about realistic things that you can worry about. That's what I want to give the people. Uh, that's why I did the video, by the way, the video, you, you, you could skip the whole book. The video is an animated video. 10 million people have watched it in no time. It's something that's very digestible and it carries the picture. Um, if, um, because if you worry, then you'll do something to prevent those worries. If you worry about going to World War II, if you worry about those. And if we could get enough people who believe in these things, then we will have a different choice, right? There'll be less likelihood of us fighting with each other and doing us doing each other harm and instead doing more good things that will raise ourselves and raise our living standards because we have the resources to be doing those things. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the greatest danger for most people is failing to look at um, the things that could be harmful to them because they don't like to look at them. It's like some people would rather not know that they have a serious disease or something. Yeah, okay, look at it, deal with it. And then um, you're most likely to be able to deal with it effectively and minimize problems or take advantage of opportunities. There's a lot of potential here for us to do amazing things, technologies, the ability to think. I mean, we've seen uh, amazingly wonderful things the capacity for, you know, have a pandemic and we come up with vaccines, the capacity to get around the uh, fact that we can't get out of our houses. Um, all of that uh, could all raise living standards if we could all work well together. Yeah, at the end of the book, you said something that was really interesting along these lines of, you know, I, I build my portfolios from, I look at the absolute worst case scenario, the thing that just is, is I can't let that happen under any circumstance. And so I address that. And so if you said, I even have an end of the world portfolio strategy and that you allocate resources to these different buckets to make sure, well, if the world completely you know, collapsed, and I don't know what you deem the end of the world, but that's a pretty bold title, um, but that you look at those things. You said, you know, people assume that when I look at those, that it actually makes me pessimistic. But in fact, the exact opposite is true. It's liberating to know that I have thought through those scenarios. I have taken action. And I will say that's another thing. People may look, but if they don't do anything, like, I really wanted to get you back on the show because when I read your book, I was like, 
Ray, this is, I think, I was actually nervous coming into this interview. I'm like, this may be the most consequential interview I've ever done because if people take away from this that we're really at a tipping point moment and that the way that we all act in these you know, coming months and years could determine the world order, whether we uh, maintain stability or whether we go into a period of such tumultuous chaos that the loss of life is just unimaginable. And by looking at that and saying, okay, that's real. And now what do we do about it? It's a real possibility. 20 years ago, I would never have bought into it. I'd be like, oh, he's an alarmist, but it really feels real to me now. And so I, I can't encourage people to skip the book because I think the book has a lot of additional information. The video is phenomenal. It's probably the right place to start. But then to read the book and to get that information to really grow to understand exactly how these loops repeat will give you an understanding of what we need to do to forestall that. And the things are simple, but they are very difficult to do. So our goal is to be healthy and strong. So spend less than you make. Um, make sure that you are presenting yourself well on the world stage and getting along well with each other. But that means we have to race back to the middle. And that was like, I had this sense of like, what I always told people was fill your heart with love. Whenever you're going into it, and it feels stupid, feels dumb when I say it. But when I think about somebody that I disagree with or whatever, that it's the dialectic approach of, I need to learn from this friction. Rather than trying to convince them, I need to learn from their friction. I need to have respect for them as a human. So I need to want to come to a place where we can compromise and them not try to you know, drag me over to their side, me not try to drag them over to my side. Or again, I try not to have a side, but just like what works? What are the metrics? Look at the metrics. Is this actually working? If it's not, adjust. If it is, pour gas on it, right? So, but figuring that out, coming back to the middle and actually taking action on the stuff that you lay out. It's incredible. I think that um, you've done the world a tremendous service by taking these however many years you're going to do it and giving us all these incredible books and talks and videos that outline all the things that you've learned. So one, just thank you. And then two, where can people engage with this, with all the material that you're putting together? Um, <clears throat> well, so first, uh, you're welcome. Um, and I want to emphasize that what I did in the book was to describe like maybe what we could collectively do, but also what individuals can do if we don't collectively do the right thing, because either can happen. And that's why, in a sense, quote, like what I call the end of the world portfolio is to know um, that if this, no matter what happened, if there was a civil war or there was anywhere or whatever, um, that I have my protection in a certain amount and I've taken that off the table. And then once that's off the table, ah, there's relief. There's a lot less worry. And then you could be more aggressive doing the things that you'd ordinarily do with the other part of the portfolio, even thinking that way creates great relief. It's like having an insurance policy and, and, and so on. So, um, but the, uh, I think the actions that you described um, to get informed one way or another, um, the book is the best because it's most uh, complete and it brings you through it. 
Um, but the video is, is really easily digestible. Um, as I say, 10 million people in six weeks and, you know, it's grown, it's, it's, it's a hot video. Many people, um, uh, see the video and then they go to the book, whatever way that I can pass it along. And, and yes, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm at, I'm 72 years old and I'm in a phase of my life where the main thing I want to do is to pass along what I have that's going to help others, uh, particularly beyond me. So uh, uh, let me thank you for uh, being a partner and being able to pass this along to your listeners. Anytime, Ray, anytime, every time has been an extraordinary gift. So I thank you. Very grateful for what you're doing to help us get back to the middle and, and do things well, be healthy and strong. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, please go watch the video. It's absolutely incredible. Just type in Ray Dalio, Changing World Order. It will pop up on YouTube. It's incredible. It's about 44 minutes. It is unbelievable. The book is even more incredible. So if you like the video, definitely go get the book. It's extraordinary. And then also you're updating things at um, economicprinciples.org, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. So check that out as well. It's all extraordinary. Um, yeah, I cannot recommend Ray highly enough. And speaking of things that I can't recommend highly enough, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.